Well, it's great to have you uh, all here tonight. Really good to see you all, and you're looking very fresh, especially Isabel, but we know the reason for that now. But I, mean, I just thought I'd try and get uh, Nathan a wee bit more bother if I possibly could, but thanks, Nathan. Thanks for leading us in, in worship. So we're going to continue. We're getting towards the end, so don't worry. We're nearly there. Continue looking at um, the book of Ephesians, and we're going to read tonight from Ephesians chapter 6. And reading from verse 5. So Ephesians 6, reading from verse 5. We read there, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thank God again and pray that he'll bring us teaching and understanding that helps to inform and transform our lives in the here and now through this word written to his people so many centuries ago. Let's just come and pray. Father, we just thank you again for your word and we thank you for its, its relevance and for its challenge. And so we ask and pray tonight that you'll help us to really take this word into our own hearts and our own lives, to allow you to, to search through our lives and where there's a need for us to be changed, to repent or whatever else, that we'll be ready to take that step. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin tonight by talking about the elephant in the room. Now, no need to, to look around nervously at this point because the particular elephant that I believe we need to look at is the issue that stands at the heart of what Paul teaches here. Before we, we move in to look at the detail of what he goes on to say, with this issue, of course, being slavery. And the, the kind of questions that I believe make this the elephant in the room are including no doubt among others, but things like, why does the Bible seem to allow slavery? Paul seems to accept it here. I mean, why doesn't Paul take the opportunity that he's presented with here and in other places in the New Testament to just out and out condemn slavery, say that it's wrong for any, other, for any human being to own another human being and simply command Christian slave owners to set their slaves free. Well, let's just take a little bit of time to look at this to see if we can go at least some way towards answering these challenging questions. So the first thing I, I believe we, we need to really be clear about is that slavery is a man-made institution. Slavery is man's creation, not God's. Also, Slavery has been understood and practiced in different ways 
by a whole variety of cultures within the scope of human history. And certainly this was true of the different cultures that Paul encountered during his lifetime. Roman, Greek and Jewish culture all understood and practiced slavery in different ways and in some cases in significantly different ways. So while in Greek and Roman culture slaves do seem to be in some way regarded as human beings, yet they were also seen somehow as lesser beings, as being less than complete human beings. So we find then no less than the great Greek philosopher Aristotle saying that a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. The furthest he felt able to go was to say that a slave is a kind of possession with a soul. Indeed, a justification that was put forward for slavery within these cultures was that slaves were too stupid to be able to live by themselves, to look after themselves. So the institution of slavery then, whereby these people would be fed and sheltered and clothed, this was beneficial to them. You were doing them a favour by having them as your slaves. Among the, the Hebrews or the Jews, to the Jews, God gave, gave laws that were intended to limit the excesses and cruelties of slavery. So for instance, while a Jew could become a slave of another Jew, say as a way of paying a fine for a crime that they couldn't pay in any other way, or because they were in debt and there was no other way to, to survive, yet they were to be treated as well as hired workers. And all Jewish slaves were to be set free after six years, Exodus 21, verse 2. And they were to be set free with a liberal supply of grain and wine and livestock. That's in Deuteronomy 15. Foreign slaves, however, could be kept for life. But the laws God gave made it clear that they were not inferior beings who could so be mistreated, Exodus 23, verse 9. Instead, they were to be loved just as a fellow Israelite should be loved. And that's in Leviticus 19. And as for female slaves, well, God's word again explicitly condemns their rape in Deuteronomy 22. It, it excludes their use in prostitution in Deuteronomy 23. Or their involvement in sex outside of marriage, whether that be consensual or not. And again, that's back in Deuteronomy 22. And there's a fair bit more teaching in the Old Testament about the proper treatment of slaves. And I think it's enough to make it clear that the treatment of slaves among God's people was intended to be much, much more caring and compassionate than the treatment meted out to slaves in any other culture. In history. And you know, even in the, the Greek and Roman world, the experience of slavery in that world could be quite different, I think, from what we might imagine. For instance, beside the, the usual routes into slavery, we've talked about, you know, captive, capture in war, or debt, or, or maybe being born into slavery. Besides this, people could actually sell themselves into slavery. Sell themselves next later, perhaps for a, a fixed period of time, regaining their, their freedom at the end. But not always. That wasn't always the case. Well, why would someone do that? Why would they? 
Well, because as a slave, if they sold themselves into the household of a good master, they would be provided with food and clothing and shelter and medical care, something perhaps that they couldn't find or afford as a poor person. In addition, for some, slavery could pave the way to education and training that would not otherwise be open to them. So slaves then became skilled craftsmen, artists, teachers, doctors, lawyers, accountants, managers of large estates. And wise masters either at some point promised these people their freedom after a, a fixed period if they worked well, which is a fantastic incentive for them to give up their best, or they would allow them leeway to earn their own money so that they could buy themselves out of slavery at some point. But you see, this was a route down which many people travelled. Just for an example, Felix, the Roman governor of Judea, who Paul was put on trial before in Exodus, sorry, in Acts 24, he started off his life as a slave. But of course, for many in the ancient world, life as a slave was far from a bed of roses. It was still fundamentally degrading, exploitative, and acts of terrible, unimaginable cruelty did take place. But I hope, though, you can see that slavery in its various guises during Paul's lifetime was something rather different to the horrendous institutional slavery practiced in places like the West Indies under the rule of the United Kingdom or in the United States. And that's the picture of slavery that for many of us, understandably, comes right into our minds whenever we hear this word, think about this. But it was very different. For instance, in the New Testament, race was not a factor. Slaves came from all over the Roman world. And in fact, they were more likely to be whitened in their skin colour than, than anything else. And slaves worked in all sorts of occupations had a real, as we've already said, possibility of working their way to freedom. This is so different from our concept of slavery that is primarily based on race and that was almost, almost without exception a lifetime of drudgery sprinkled with acts of out-and-out -out barbarity. But just bear that in mind. Bear it in mind that the experience of slavery was different when this letter was written. Also, slavery at this time was incredibly widespread and it was ingrained into the economic life of the world, in particular the Roman Empire. Some reckon that there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, which given the much smaller world population that there was then, is actually a mind-blowing figure. In many cities of the empire, Slaves greatly outnumbered free men and women. Now you see, if these people had been set free overnight, even if significant numbers had been set free, then industry, trade, commerce would have instantly ground to a halt. And many of these slave, freed slaves personally would instantly have been homeless, unemployed and consigned, at least in the medium term, to a life of absolute poverty. So you see, for Paul to have 
simply jumped in here and said, slavery is a shameful, sinful institution. No Christian should have anything to do with it. So if you have slaves, free them and work and agitate with all your power to have slavery made unlawful in the empire and throughout the world. You see, if Paul had said this, then immediately then, Christianity would have been pigeonholed as a movement of social revolution and as an economic threat. The church would then have suffered unprecedented persecution. But far more importantly, it would have lost its spiritual focus. It would have lost its impact. But you see, Paul didn't say this. Paul couldn't say this. Paul would never say this. Because you see, for Paul, social conditions, personal conditions and circumstances were never, ever the priority. Now for Paul, the focus was always on Christ. And his priority was always through Christ, the spiritual inner transformation of those he came into contact with. For you see, if Christ is at the centre of our lives, if we are focused on him, if his life, his power, the life and power of the Holy Spirit are at work in us, then the God who is at work within us will enable us to live for his glory, no matter our circumstances. And as we live for his glory, we change. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, we're able to bring change about in our circumstances as well. But if not, changed, we are able to live for him in our circumstances. So then, here you see, in these verses in Ephesians, Paul focuses on the spiritual transformation of those he's writing to. But actually, along the way, as he does so, he gently sets out principles that we're going to look at in a few moments, principles that ultimately actually led to the abolishment of slavery. But I want to say that what is a cause of shame, though, is the fact that it took so long. That Paul wrote these words in the first century, but it took till 1833 before slavery was, was abolished in our own country. It took till 1865 in the United States. And though the church did eventually play a prominent role in the abolition of slavery, yet, to our shame, many Christians actually tried to use obscure parts of the Bible taken out of context as a justification for slavery and for racial prejudice. But you know, the best Christian minds have always understood the innate sinfulness of slavery and of racial prejudice. For example, Calvin in the 16th century, these are his words, this is what he said. He said that this is a thing totally against the order of nature. That human beings fashioned after the image of God should ever be put to such reproach. 
Now, before we move on from this elephant, just to look at this passage itself briefly, let me just say one final thing here. That is that there are those who try to draw a parallel between the church's attitude to slavery and the church today's attitude to home, things like homosexuality, same-sex marriage, etc. You see that the church finally realized that it had got it wrong and changed its mind on slavery. So eventually, we're told, the church will do the same thing with these other issues. Well, you know, many perhaps will give in to the pressure of society. I think we're seeing that happen. But my hope is that there will always be evangelical, Bible-believing churches that don't. Because while slavery is man-made, our sexuality is God-given. And while God never condones slavery, yet he frequently comes out in opposition against homosexual behaviour. Now, I want to be clear. Homosexual people deserve care and compassion. We need to communicate to them that they are people loved by God. We need to stand with them at times in the struggle and pain that so many of them experience. We need to let them know that we accept them as people. But should we go as far as to say what is wrong is right? Should we, as we're more and more told we should, simply accept the gay lifestyle as another equally valid alternative in the eyes of God? My view is no. Rather, we should continue to be faithful to God and to his word, no matter what the pressure. Well, I said we'd look at the details of this passage, and we will more briefly than usual, but we will. With what's said here, incidentally, to slaves and masters, having relevance, I believe, in the context we live in, to employees and employers. So the call to slaves, or employees, if you like, in verse 5 to 8, it's there, and this call, as I see it, has really two different key elements. First, there's a call to a different perspective. A different perspective, for in each verse of the four verses addressed to slaves here, in each verse, Jesus is mentioned, either as Jesus or as Lord and fundamentally, then, what Paul is saying is, slaves, make sure that you are actually living with Jesus at the centre as Lord of your life. And then bring him into the centre of your life circumstances, your day-by-day life. Don't keep him out of the fringes. Bring him into the centre and live your life to please him. Seek him and live to glorify him in whatever way you can, knowing as you do this that he is with you, ready to give you his strength, to strengthen you and enable you, ready to lift you up when you fail and fall down. You know, there was a song that used to be sung more frequently, I think, than it is now, but we sung it a bit tonight. And the idea isn't it, that this song, it's all about you, Jesus. Great. 
But you know, for too many of us as Christians, the actual song of our life, in the sense of the way that we live our life, is rather, it's all about me, Jesus. It's all about me. For we maybe believe in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, we maybe trusted in him as Saviour and Lord. But I believe, you know, we find Christians who are not really living with Jesus as Lord. Living with him as our number one. Now, we're at the centre. We're at our, our own number one. And we live life through this perspective rather than through the perspective of Christ, seeing things through Christ. So you see, instead of life being interpreted in terms of how can I glorify Jesus in this? How can I grow closer to Jesus through this? How can this experience help me to grow to be more like him? Instead of this, when we're at the centre, when life is lived from that perspective, then it's all about me. It's me. I want to be happy. I want to be successful. I want to be admired. So why is all this happening to me? And we, we just get drawn more and more into ourselves. And as we do, life just seems to get darker and darker. So what's the problem? Well, there are maybe lots of problems, many problems going on in life. And we maybe are the victims of injustice and all sorts of other things. But when we're thinking like this, we are part of the problem. Because we need to put Jesus at the centre. We need to seek him. We need to seek to live, to glorify him. Because it's only as we do that we'll then be able to deal with and to grow and develop in the very midst of whatever life throws our way. But there's also a call here to these slaves. Another call, a call to a different attitude that, that builds on this. You see here, following on from this, Paul calls these slaves here to see themselves as they serve their earthly masters as serving Christ. Here, all about Jesus at the centre. And so he says that they are to obey them, verse 5, with fear and respect which John Stott defines as implying not a cringing servility before a human master, but rather a reverent acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus, whose authority the master represents. He also calls him again in verse 5, to serve with sincerity. It's not just to, to go through the motions, not to serve for ulterior motives, looking maybe for what you might get, in return, but rather serving with integrity, serving with love, that is serving men, serving our employers as an expression of our love for God, of the love of God that is in our hearts. And Paul calls God's people, slaves, yes, he calls them, but he calls all of God's people, he calls us to walk and to serve conscientiously. He calls us not to work hard when maybe the boss's eye is on us, but to go through the motions for the rest of the time. Look, Paul calls us to give of our best all of the time. Because ultimately, we are serving God. 
We're serving the all-seeing God, the God who deserves nothing but our very best. As verse 6 says, Obey them, not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. And finally, Paul winds up all that he has to, to say to slaves by reminding them again of the perspective that God calls them to have on the work that they do. That they are his and that they are serving him. And that as they serve their earthly masters wholeheartedly, that is willingly, cheerfully, holding nothing by, or so they do glorify him and please him. And though their service might go unnoticed, unappreciated, unrewarded on earth in this life, yet God sees what we do. And he knows what's in our hearts as we do it. And what we do for him will be rewarded. It will be rewarded eternally in ways that go beyond our understanding. Well, how does all of this apply to us practically? Simple, I believe, in this way. That we need to keep Jesus at the centre of our lives. That we need Jesus to be the lens through which we see life and live life. Our life needs to be lived, should be lived, every moment and in every area from a Jesus Christ perspective. Let me just share a, an abbreviated quote that I found with you. This is it. It is possible to cook a meal as if Jesus were going to eat it. To clean a house as if he were to be the honoured guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors and nurses to care for patients, for shop assistants to serve customers, and for the masses of unskilled workers to do their work as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ. As Paul here addresses these slaves, I believe that is what he's calling each of us to do. Whatever work did we do, to do it to serve Christ. But Paul doesn't only issue a call to slaves, he also issues a challenge to masters here in verse 9. And the basis of that challenge is to recognise the fundamental equality of every man and every woman in the eyes of God. As he says, as he says elsewhere in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, Slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's starting point in his dealings with these masters, that is, employers who are in a position of authority over others. That is, recognise that though you might have power and authority over others in this world, yet, you are no different. You are no better than they are in the eyes of God. So make sure that, that you use whatever power and authority you might have wisely and well. That's, that's I believe, what Paul's saying in verse 9. And masters, he says, treat your slaves 
in the same way. That is, see them in Christ as you see yourself. And so treat them and treat their service with the same kind of respect that you yourself would hope to receive. And then he goes on. And do not threaten them. Do not threaten them. Which doesn't, I believe, mean that there shouldn't be discipline or room for repercussions when people step out of line in the workplace. But rather it means that the norm of life in the workplace, that the atmosphere in the workplace should not be one of threat and intimidation. For not only does that kind of approach fail to recognise the dignity and worth of another human being, which is what's most important, but as well as that, bullying, threats and intimidation as the operating system in a workplace just flat out doesn't work. That's what God's saying here. People don't work at their best when they're bullied and fearful because of that or maybe resentful depending on their personality. People work at their best when they feel valued and respected. When they're encouraged and appreciated. Now maybe sometimes some do need a push to get going, yeah. But an atmosphere, day by day, of threat and intimidation, a setting where people don't feel valued and respected, not only from a Christian perspective, is that intrinsically wrong, also practically, it doesn't work. And masters here, they aren't so much promised a reward, though of course those who lead in a way that honours God will also be rewarded. But Paul's approach here in this verse is rather to subtly remind them of the prospect of judgment. See what he says? Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So be careful then how you treat others. Because remember that before God you stand on level ground. He is both their master and yours. And one day he will judge us all. Make sure then that you have dealt with others fairly, that you may then be prepared to stand before him. <coughs> Let me finish now by simply saying that it's very easy, I think, for us, coming from where we are now, to, to really miss the totally revolutionary nature of what Paul is actually saying here. I mean, the very fact that Paul speaks to slaves here, the very fact that he mentions and addresses slaves, that would have astonished any educated member of free society at this time. You see, slaves were there to be used, but otherwise ignored. They were seen as of no, or at best, of very little value. So for Paul... To address them, and more than that, to address them as equals. And then to challenge here their masters to do the same. This was revolutionary. Totally unexpected. This turned their world upside down. But you see, that is what Christianity has always been about. By its truths, and by the transformed lives of God's people, challenging this world's values and perceptions, 
and so turning our world upside down. I say, may we as God's people play our part. Whatever our place is, whatever our role might be in life, in our work, seeking to glorify God, to please him above everything else, in our treatment of others, by the way we value them, by the way we treat them with respect, no matter what their status might be in this world, may we, as the Ephesians actually did in the first century, may we shine out for God in the darkness of this world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.